You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. It's been many years since I've preached, and I forgot just how terrified I get when I'm preaching. And uh, now I'm not a signs and wonder kind of guy. I just believe that God can can comfort where he needs. And Melvin doesn't know that that song has my life section in it. Lamentations and, and Lamentations chapter 3 from about verse 15. From a difficult time I was going through, Jess knows about it. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink with worm, drunk with wormwood, and he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust, and my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness, so I say my strength is perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is life faithfulness. Thank you, Melvin. The Lord settled my heart down a little bit more, and so I'd like to talk to you this morning. I've enjoyed coming to this church. That doesn't mean I'm leaving. I'm just, I, love, I, <laughs> I love the way you people treat each other. I love the doctrine I hear from the pulpit. And um, I'm a creature of doctrine. I like doctrine. But often in my life, the doctrine is, is, is dry and studious and correct. And as, I was, as I've been studying through the book of Colossians for our Sunday school, I'm being given a new view of just who Jesus Christ is and uh, how far short we fall often of, at least I fall, of recognizing what he is and what he has done. And so, as I've been teaching through in Sunday school, it's more of a didactic approach. This morning, I'm, I, I, I use humor, and there'll be some, but it's a tremendously serious thing. Who is Jesus? Bad doctrine will lead us away from him, and good doctrine will lead us to him. We've got to get this right, and I know I believe God has blessed this church with teachers so that if you, to, to coin a phrase or to, to use a coin phrase, we're getting it right. But I begin to realize that to build that doctrine into my life means it begins to be an expression of my love for Jesus Christ and my relationship with Him. And so Jim read the scripture reading this morning, and we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, he's the creator, he's the maintainer, and he's the reconciler. And what I want us to see, what I want me to see, is what that means, what the result of that must be. And so let's, before I start, I want to go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at Jesus Christ, the creator, the maintainer, and the reconciler. Father, we're, we're grateful that you took such careful pain to outline in your word from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Revelation, the Creator, the Maintainer, and the Reconciler, Jesus Christ, who is everything, who is first, who is preeminent. 
and must be so in our lives. And Lord, that expression that we have of Christ in our lives will draw men unto you. And you are the one who does it all. This morning, help us to see just one more, one more page in the book that is Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reason I get terrified when I'm up here is, is because it's different than giving a state lands presentation, which I did yesterday. You need to get that stuff right, but if you don't, well, Idaho loses a little land. Which we don't have much to lose, but that's one thing. But if you, if you don't get scripture right, you can lead men astray and women astray, and it's, it's a frightful, it's a fearful thing for me. And so I know you guys are all Bereans, and I know that the mistakes I make, you will lovingly correct me. So, Get your pens out. I'd like to read um, the first chapter of the book of Colossians to give the setting for this. Um, and we're racing through Colossians. Since August, we've made, I mean, since April, we've made 16 verses. So I'm probably going to have to give you my notes, Nicholas, and you'll finish it when I pass on. So Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ, in Jesus, in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the love, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, and also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is the section we'll focus on through verse 20. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through him, through the blood, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say whether things on earth or in heaven. And though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And we'll stop there. So today's world is full of inconsistencies. It's full of pain. It's full of fear difficulties, but you know it's also full of kindnesses 
and blessings beyond belief. Now, it's not going to be a message about the power of positive thinking, although that's not a bad idea to have as long as you don't take it to some of the modern extremes. But the fact is, there is a someone who has overcome all these difficulties. Now, I have no problem sticking my feet in my mouth. I seem to have, as a, as a country, as a nation, as a world, we have no problem killing and hurting one another. The message we hear from life is, life is tough, get over it. I was working on a message about name dropping and, and uh, poor self-images and attempts to be famous and stuff like that. And as I was studying, I began to realize that that's all been answered and it's details. And the one detail that I often leave out is Christ. Often I'll start with a proposition and the proposition may be valid, maybe not be valid. But I find myself too often not starting with Christ. So there seems to be no end of things we can get ourselves involved in. Sometimes life seems to be a spiral that touches on difficult things day by day. We get involved in politics, or at least some of us that are dumb enough to do that do. Uh, we get involved in, um, looking for some of my notes here. I've got, I made notes this morning. I made notes on the way to work. I mean, not work, on the way to church. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip. It's very easy to begin to think that some of the methods we've come up with will solve the world's problems, will solve the issues of the day. It's very easy for us to take our focus off that one person. Now, two messages in a row from Dr. Atmore. Atmore. Yeah, the first one really, I, I liked them both, but the first one really, really came home to me. He said, what, did he, what kind of thing did he talk about? Everybody remember what he's, his adjective for thing was? The main thing. You have to keep the main thing the main thing because it's the main thing. And that, a good alliteration like that really sticks in your mind. Well, I've done a, I've done a good job to start out with this morning, going over a whole bunch of ideas and stuff. And you might think I'm going to try and tie all of those up. I'm not. Um, what I want to do is to preach Jesus. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, Philip did that very thing. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ unto them. In Acts chapter 5, 42, Peter and the other apostles did the same. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. In the book of Colossians, which has variously been called the handbook for dealing with Gnosticism all the way to an epistle of thanksgiving, we have clues for how to deal with some of the stuff I talked about earlier, how to become more usable, more productive, um, how to be of better service to other people. But more importantly, it tells us about Christ. Indeed, some of the commentaries I read said some of the most important descriptive sentences about who and what Jesus Christ is are in the book of Colossians, especially in the first chapter. So should we continually revisit the subject of Jesus Christ? That's what we are about brothers and sisters, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Colossians is most likely a treatise dealing with one of the growing heresies in the early church. It was called Gnosticism. And I'm going to give you a little background. And we're all familiar with the, the old saying. Well, actually, it's not an old saying. It's out of Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. And uh, Gnosticism traces its roots back to just after the beginning of the Christian church. Some researchers say that it was in evidence 
that it even predated Christianity. Whatever the case, this error affected the culture of the church at the time and probably even earned a mention in, in uh, 1 John 4. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. There were many groups that were Gnostic, and it is impossible to easily describe the nuances of each. Indeed, Irenaeus, frustrated over one of the early church fathers, frustrated over how Gnosticism could grab every truth and draw it to itself. My, my take on that is dealing with the, the cult of Gnosticism is trying, like trying to nail jello to the wall. You just can't do it. Uh, and it's, it's, it, de- it dealt with the individual's relationship to a transcendent, transcendent being. Nothing has changed. Um, I want to just kind of go over a couple of the things that we discovered we've talked about in Sunday school. Gnostics believed that spiritual knowledge is the key to attain salvation. So we learn, but we don't need Christ. It's spiritual knowledge. It's what we learn, but not Christ. Gnostic, the Gnostics believe that both male and female images in the Supreme God were common. A blurring of gender distinctions. Is that happening today? This is 2,000 plus years old. Uh, women like Mary Magdalene supposedly played an important part in the Gnostic text. Duality in the concept of God. Gnostics believe that there is a true God who cre- is the essence of every living and non-living creation and a false God or a creator God who created the flawed world. And that's who the Gnostics believe Jesus was. That is veritable, veritable blasphemy. According to the Gnostics, humans mirror the duality found in the world. They are in part flawed from the creation of the false creator, and yet we also contain the light of the true God. Have you heard that today anywhere? It's eclectic. It selects what appears to be the best in various doctrines, methods, or styles. It's composed of elements drawn from various sources uh, and polymorphic. One man observed this. He said, Gnostic syncretism, the amalgamating of everything to itself, believes everything in general for the purpose of avoiding belief in something in particular. In the case of Christian Gnosticism, what is being avoided is the particularity of the gospel, that which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The Gnostic is self-absorbed. And when we are not focusing on Christ, when I'm not focusing on Christ, I'm self-absorbed. I just want to give you a little background so you can see that when I talk about Jesus Christ, he's the same today, the same yesterday, the same forever. And indeed, so are the the false philosophies that pervade our world. These strange things are no different than the strange things we come up with today that I just read about. Dr. John MacArthur did a, Thomas sent me a link, and I was was trying to figure out how to work this into it, but it's, if any of you are familiar with Dr. MacArthur's preaching, it's very, very um, sourced and, and dynamic, and it would have just been impossible. And plus, I'd have had to, there would have been a number of, I'd had to give attribution and everything, and it just would have been a mess. But basically, I want to tell you what he said was, he presented through a well-thought-through dissertation that modern feminism has its roots in Gnosticism. It's my belief that all the heresies in the modern church can be traced back to probably two things, Gnosticism and works salvation. Well, again, we don't have the time to work through all those this morning. So what I want to talk to you now, to now with that background is, and why did I give you the background of the, Gnostic, the Gnosticism? Because then, as now, people rejected the fact that Christ was the Creator. Then, as now, people reject the, the fact that Jesus Christ maintains His creation, that He is He's entered into it. And then, as now, people reject the fact that Christ is the Reconciler, 
that without him, we will all cease to exist. We will all go to hell. Let me, let me leave it that way. No, we don't cease to exist. So on to the book of Colossians, and more specifically, the incredible supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the section I'm going to talk about, 15 through 20. Uh, there are many scholars who believe that this was a hymn, words that were put to a hymn, that a cadence that, that uh, recited what the early church believed about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it was incorporated into the first chapter of the book of Colossians. So there's three parts to this, as you've seen by the title. Christ is creator, Christ is maintainer, and Christ is reconciler. He begins, Paul begins his, his uh, introduction of Christ as the creator by referencing the fact that Christ is the exact representation of God. He is the image of the invisible God. What does it mean to be the image of someone else? Look around. Um, you're going to see people that are sons and daughters of family members, and they, they look alike, don't they? Sometimes they don't, but there are people that really look like their parents. But this is more than that. Even if they think like their parents, I hope my kids don't always think like me. It'll save them a lot of trouble if they don't. Are you listening? But this is more than that. The Greek word is a word where we get our English word icon. It's the same word used in Matthew 22:20, describing Caesar's portrait on a coin. When you talk to a child who is very much like the person, the parent, you're struck by the similarities. And if you're friends with the parent, you generally like those similarities. Well, in this church, <laughs> uh, there have been other places where the similarities uh, between parents and children were not salutary. But again, this is different. This is a different kind of similarity. In John 14:9, Jesus exasperated. Can you imagine Jesus being exasperated? Well, I, he was a real person just like we are. And he never succumbed to sin, but he had emotions. He had, he had things happen to him and he reacted to them, always correctly. But he reacted exasperatedly to Thomas's question and he said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Thomas, get a life. The Gnostics in the first and second century would say that men were representations of God. And in a limited way, this is true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For a man ought to have, ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. I think we can agree, we can all agree, that man is not in any way a perfect image of God. In Jesus Christ, we have the picture, perfect representation in every way of Jesus, of God as creator. And I want to get, we talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Um, and how I have just really begun to understand what it means to be a firstborn. Nick is my firstborn. But the concept of firstborn in Scripture invariably refers to preeminence, rank, as one person in Sunday school pointed out, the heir of things. In the, in the, the King James says that Paul, that Christ was the firstborn of every creature. The Greek word is speaking of his rank. Israel was called God's firstborn in Exodus 4.22 and in Jeremiah 31.9. Was Jacob the firstborn? Was he born first? Thank you very much. In speaking of the Messiah in Psalm 89:27, the Bible says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The firstborn in this case means the highest of the kings of the earth, exactly as the text says. No commentary necessary. And then finally in Revelation 1:5, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. And as I asked in Sunday school this morning, is he the first person that was reborn? 
that was raised from the dead? Can you think of someone just before him who was raised from the dead? Lazarus. And then I, I should have looked it up in between, but somebody got thrown in a grave that had one of the prophet's bones in it and he bounced out alive. So that's another one. It was Elisha or Elijah. I don't remember which grave it was. But, but And Pat pointed out that, remember though, all of those people went ahead and died again. Jesus did not. So there's no commentary needed there. And grammatically, this could be translated as firstborn in creation, but context makes it impossible. The whole point of the passage is that in fact, the book shows that Christ's superiority over all things. In another verse, he's called creator. And in another, the upholder of all things. This, inc- this clearly indicates priority and superiority over all of creation. Now, let's face it. If he's the firstborn, and that is describing creation by his father, by the father, he can't be a part of the creation if he created all things. It's a logical impossibility. You cannot create yourself. I talked about this this morning in Sunday school, but I want to just kind of read through what the, the Jehovah's Witnesses do to this section of Scripture. Now, there are often times when translators will insert words, but the words are, given, are inserted to give clarity, and they will never change the intent of the section in which they are inserted. And I have a couple of examples. I'll get to one. I'll, I'll use one. Here's what the, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have done in the New World Translation in this section. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, the things visible and things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities. All other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. And he is the head of the body of the congregation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might become the one who is the first in all things. Because God was pleased to have all fullness to dwell in him. I don't know why they didn't twist that one. And through him to reconcile himself to all other things by making peace through the blood he shed on the torture stake, whether the things on the earth or on the things beyond in the heavens. Does that sound a little strained to you? It's not exhaustive. I didn't do an exhaustive study, but I found 13 perfectly good Greek words that can be translated other. I didn't know there were that many. And there probably are others that I didn't find. Some of them were specific to certain usages. For example, the phrase, on the other hand, the word inserted simply gives uh, an emphasis. It says, oh, pay attention to this other thing. Pay attention to this. It's what it's doing in that type of a phrase. But here's an example of where the word other was inserted by the translators. In Matthew chapter 13, 33, speaking of the mustard seed in comparison to other seeds, and I'll give 32 and 33 for context. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The word was inserted to give clarity to the sentence. It didn't change any doctrine. It didn't change any way that the verse can be perceived. Please note, please note. But to arbitrarily insert a word five times in one passage in order to direct someone away from an obvious doctrine is a bit strained, as I said, don't you think? Finally, if Christ was the first created, and as I pointed this out this morning, the Greek word would have been a different Greek word altogether, which means, get this, first created. It's a word that actually means first created. And it's used elsewhere. Paul didn't use it there because that's not what he was trying to communicate to us. What he was trying to communicate to us was Christ is the most important of all the most important things 
that have ever existed. And he's always existed. And as just so nobody would mistake that this was an afterthought, Paul reminds us that he created everything. And here's what he created. What's in heaven? What's in earth? What's visible? What's invisible? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything. Everything. Nothing excluded. Everything. And he did this in six days. So this little snippet that I found seems to capture the opposite of that, evolutionary thought. Maybe some of you have seen this. This is this is the foundational philosophy that life evolved from uh, simple components. There was nothing, and nothing happened to nothing, and then nothing magically exploded for no reason, creating everything. And then a bunch of everything magically rearranged it itself into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs. Makes perfect sense. So we have in Christ the creator God of the universe, and this is no small thing. It makes him Jehovah. So this should make him first in our lives. It should make him first in our devotion. And I talked earlier about my bad habit of adding him to some philosophies and some ideas. Next, Christ is the maintainer. Now, I thought I'd... My son doesn't mind being picked on. So I'm going to use him a little bit and I'm going to embarrass myself. How many of you changed the oil in your car? Oh, come on. Okay. Yeah, I know. In church, you don't raise your hand unless, you know. But why do you do that? You do it to maintain your vehicle so that it won't destroy itself. So, and I have a first-hand, and Nick, please forgive me, I have a first-hand observation of what happens when you don't do this. When we were living in Tillamook, we were broke all the time. And it was during the years of all the layoffs in the mills. And I couldn't afford to change the oil in my car. Yeah, I probably could have. You know, you all know what that means. That means I spent the money on stuff I shouldn't have been spending it on. But And my old Tornado went 11,000 miles without an oil change. That blew the engine. I should have been maintaining that vehicle. And it's my view, and I haven't studied this out, so those of you who are in here who like to do this kind of thing, I think when the creation was pre-sin, that it was perfect, just like the scripture says, and it didn't need maintaining. It was self-maintaining. Although everything is an expression and a result of the work of God, so in a sense, it would have been maintained by God. But I'm wondering if it's different than the way it's maintained today. Um, Science doesn't even understand, we talked about this this morning, why protons don't burst away from each other. Magnets, negative, negative, boing, they push apart. Positive, positive, boing, they push apart, right? Well, that's what's in the middle of an an atom, is protons. Why doesn't it fly apart? I'm going to read just the last verse, the last verse, (laughs) the last section I read this morning. I want to go into all the detail, but here's where... Here's what science has come up with, come up with. Armies of physicists smashing atoms together with tremendous energies have verified all of this. By the way, the force that they've come up with, uh, that keeps these atoms from flying apart, you know what they call it? The strong force. May the strong force be with your atoms. I'm not decrying science. Science is wonderful. As I talked about this morning, I love studying science. I studied veterinary science when I was in college. But when we make observations and come to conclusions that have no genuine support and we make up words for them, how many of you remember when they used to call this force gluons? 
before they came up with the term strong force, they were it was called there's protons, neutrons. What makes them stick together? <laughs> Gluons. I'm not, I kid you not. They had to change that. Armies of physicists smashing atoms together with tremendous energies have verified all of this. Physicists call these atom smashers accelerators, and then they name the different types. The results of these collisions where they smash atoms together and observe the fact that when the protons get too close, they do burst apart and explode, is called, it's, uh, are recorded and examined in painstaking detail. It's a bit like finding out what makes a watch tick by firing one at a brick wall at several hundred miles per hour and then examining the pieces that result. It's hoped that one day, and here's the final sentence that is supposed to make us confident that they understand what maintains the universe. It's hoped that one day scattering experiments will help us determine more fundamentally the nature and the origin of force itself. Now, it sounds trite and silly, but for all of our scientific acumen today, we're really not sure why the universe sticks around. I don't want to sound cliche, but verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the sustainer. Not to neglect the first phrase, we have a reminder that this section regarding the firstborn is indeed telling us that Jesus Christ was first, not created, but first. And everything that happens every nanosecond of every day is made possible to happen by the maintaining power of Jesus Christ. Change the oil in your car. Don't do what I did. You have probably talked about this. I'm sure you've heard it preached. Your next breath, your next eye blink, your next nerve synapse, your next yawn, your next heartbeat. Indeed, whatever you can do is made possible because Christ maintains everything that's necessary for you to be able to do it. The old children's song comes to mind. He's got the whole world in his hands. Last, and what I think all of this points to, what's coming is Christ is the reconciliator, the reconciler. Reconciliation is needed in this world. That's come to me. Some of you who know what I'm involved in know what happened in the last couple of weeks. We need reconciliation everywhere. We need it between each other. We need it in families. We need it between political parties, within the parties. We need it between nations. But just like everything else, all of those views that we think we can, we can if we can just do this, if we can just get this done, we can make this work. We can make economics work. Where reconciliation has to come first is in people, in the hearts of people to God. And that's why the Great Awakening was the precursor of the founding of this country. Because people were reconciled to Christ. They were reconciled to God in the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s. A true reconciliation is coming. But Christ as reconciler falls Paul's reminder that the body of reconciled people that is created, the church, is headed by Christ. More preeminence. More of a reminder that he must have first place in everything. And then Paul cements the fact that Christ is deity by reminding his readers that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. He says it here very simply, but later in Colossians 2.9, he says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And the Greek word means to house permanently. It's not something that happened in time. It's always been a quality of the preeminent one, the firstborn. It is for this that he was born. And if I can tie it up with this, he was born to reconcile us to the Father. And the only reason we can be reconciled is because he paid the price through the blood of his cross. 
and the creation is reconciled. Everything is reconciled. Whether it's on earth or in heaven, again, why Paul told us that? So that no one would make the mistake that Christ wasn't first in everything. So what's the takeaway from this? Well, as I was driving in today and thinking about all of this stuff, is anybody, you've probably thought of it, especially those who have, are of a scientific bent in here, but you look around and you see the clouds and you think, okay, the hydrologic cycle, the clouds, the rain, sustaining plants, and, and we don't give it a second thought, but to, to untwist a recent statement by someone, he built that. The way your entire circulatory system works. When, when we had one of our children have problems when they were very young and they were diagnosed, one of the, the diagnosis was a word that means something happened in the dark and broke it in half. When you translate the Latin, something happened in the dark. For all of our knowledge, we have very little knowledge. So the takeaway is this, and here's where I would like to go. I'm going to quote to you out of an old an old book that was written in the 1600s by a, a Puritan, John Owen. Have any of you read John Owen's, some of John Owen's books? Okay. I haven't read all of them. I've read excerpts. I've studied sermons from MacArthur, and he excerpts it. I've studied sermons from other people that excerpt his writings. But I find myself, and this is, this is kind of how I want to finish up here. I find myself delighted that Christ saved me. And then I go on about my life daily. I find myself grateful that he came down and spent his blood on the cross so that I could spend eternity with Christ and, and the Father in heaven. And I think probably after thinking about some of the wonders of the world that I'm going to spend my first month in heaven just like this. I really mean that. We have no idea what's ready for us. Actually, I'll probably spend my first month on my face. Those of you who are closer to him will spend your first month like that. So take this away from me, from this, if you will, this morning. This should consume more of our time and thought. Thinking that I can make a difference with this or that methodology should consume less of our time and thought. I find myself not dwelling very much on the firstness the supremacy of Christ. And so here it is. He keeps me. He created me. He keeps me every day. He reconciled me to the Father. I'd like to close with this quote. This is an interesting quote from John Owen. And, and he was much like the Apostle Paul in the, not, and only in grammar. <laughs> this is not scripture. Um, it's very well written. But sometimes Paul had run, what I call run-on sentences where you had to, you start the sentence and by the time you get to the end of it, you realize that 63 doctrines have been taught. Um, along with 23 semicolons, 51 commas, two hyphens, and 17 parentheses. So that's kind of what this is, but it's a wonderful little, a wonderful little closure here for us to read. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, far more glorious, far more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation. And the just comprehension of it, if attainable, cannot contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and confusion. This, therefore, deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, 
and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where he is and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel? That by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. Let's pray. Father, there's uh, nothing that you left out for our our need in your scripture. Nothing that you've avoided. Nothing that you didn't want to tell us that isn't there. We have everything we need to love, honor, and trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, help us to, as it says in Colossians, he is the preeminent one. And in him dwells all the fullness of deity. Help us in our to take time out of our days to smell that rose, to look at that, to contemplate it, to welcome it, and to begin living as though we really believe it. For those of us, like myself, who have fallen short of that. And we'll thank you for what you're going to do in us, grace to grace, as we become more like your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.